Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. Last time we talked a bit about the beginnings of Christian persecution, and we thought a bit about what it was like to be in the early church, the dangers inherent of being a Christian and attending the Eucharist, and we talked a bit about the first major persecution under the Emperor Nero in Rome, in which Saints Peter and Paul were killed. As time went on, there were persecutions under various emperors. One church historian said there were ten major persecutions. This may have just been a nice round number, it might have been reminiscent of the ten plagues in Egypt, or these may have been specifically the ten persecutions which most affected the church. One way or the other, eight of those ten were regional. So from the time of Nero in the 60s up to about 250, so for almost 200 years, all persecution of Christians happened on a region-by-region basis. So you might have a specific governor in a specific place who is very hard on the Christians, who is trying to seek out where churches are meeting, trying to arrest clergy, trying to arrest individual Christians, and that might happen for a number of years, and then a new governor replaces him, and things become more tolerable for Christians in that region. Then the same thing pops up somewhere else. And this is not in any way to diminish the danger and the horror of being a Christian over that 200-year period, because at any time, a new administration might take over your area, and uh, everyone you know might be hauled off to prison to either sacrifice to idols or to be murdered in a public spectacle. This is just an unthinkably challenging and awful time for Christians. You know that wherever you are in the empire, Sunday by Sunday, you are actively risking your life to go to church. Going to church is a death-defying kind of crazy act. It's hard to even imagine a modern comparison of something that is this dangerous and this kind of crazy um, being a an essential activity to your life. Maybe if you're into like um, bear wrestling or, uh, I don't know, like unarmed alligator hunting or something like this. Like this is like a very, very dangerous activity being a Christian. And yet thousands and thousands and thousands of people were just swarming to the church, were were undergoing rigorous uh, catechumenate processes to become instructed as Christians, to be baptized as Christians. And then thousands and thousands of Christians were actually martyred during this this almost 200-year period. So very difficult time to be a Christian but nothing compared to what is to come. The 220s were a difficult time for the Roman Empire. There were nations rising on various sides of Rome that were making incursions into Roman territory. And in 222, an extremely young emperor, Severus Alexander, became emperor at the age of 14. There had been dramatic challenges in battling people in modern-day Germany and France And in the 230s, Severus took a new tack in dealing with them. 
rather than charging in and flattening their cities and killing every man, woman, child, and animal, which is the traditional Roman way to confront your enemies, Severus Alexander tried this crazy move, and he approached these Germanic tribes using diplomacy and also some bribery. And this drove his very macho armies crazy. Even though this was a very successful way of dealing with these Germanic chieftains, the army felt that this was cowardly and uh, counterproductive and non-Roman. And so eventually in 235, Severus Alexander was killed by his own army. To understand this period in Christian history, it's important to know what a Roman emperor is. So the emperors, their, their title actually comes from a kind of high-ranking military title, which is a field marshal. So the emperors, they're not like hereditary kings who just have a sort of divine right to reign over a specific territory and people. Instead, they're actually the chiefs of the army. So an emperor is not um, born. An emperor is acclaimed. And the emperor is not acclaimed by the people. The emperor is acclaimed by the army. So the armies choose the emperors. The problem comes when different factions in the army choose different emperors, and those emperors have to duke it out. And after Severus Alexander's death, there was a lot of duking it out. Severus Alexander's death initiates what's sometimes called the crisis of the third century. And this is a period of 50 years in which the Roman Empire totally falls apart. In this period, being the Roman emperor becomes one of the world's most dangerous jobs because they are constantly being killed by their own guards, by the members of their own families, by their own men. In 50 years, you have 26 different emperors reigning. And when two different generals are competing to be one of those 26 emperors, when the two of them are duking it out, this means basically civil war within the empire because you have one faction of the Roman army going up against another faction of the Roman army. And to fund this, it takes a tremendous amount of money. So these generals are scrambling to get more and more money to pay their troops. One way to do this, if you don't have enough money to go around, is to devalue your currency. So Roman currency was based on its silver content, which was then related to a gold standard, and these emperors began to, to mix in more bronze with the silver. Initially, when you do this, you just have more coinage to go around. Everybody's happy. But soon enough, people realize that what they're getting actually has less value because it contains less silver. And so shopkeepers and merchants start charging more for the goods that they have so they can actually get the same amount of value for the goods, the same amount of silver. So you have a loaf of bread that yesterday cost a dollar, but now a dollar is worth 50 cents, so that loaf of bread costs two dollars. And soon enough, you have this rapid process of just insane inflation, which begins sweeping through the empire and creating catastrophic economic consequences. And if a wrecked economy, total political instability, and in many places, all-out civil war weren't enough, in 249, plague breaks out, and in some places kills as much as one-third of the population. In the huge, important uh, metropolis of Alexandria in Egypt, population is estimated to have fallen by as much as 62% during this time of plague. And so in the midst of all this, this huge, sprawling empire built by various Roman armies 
starts to dissolve and it actually breaks apart. The Roman Empire during this period splits up into three separate empires. So you have the Roman Empire, which is kind of the Italian peninsula and surroundings. You have the Gallic Empire, which is modern day France and England, parts of Germany. For a time, uh, Spain is part of this. And then you have the Palmyrene Empire, which is modern day Palestine, Egypt, Syria, parts of Turkey. And this great cohesive empire that was sort of a wonder of the world is suddenly no more. The emperor Decius comes to power in the year 249, and he believes that the Roman Empire has fallen apart in part through loss of Roman identity, Roman religion, Roman culture. All of this has kind of gone by the wayside, and Decius believes that a kind of a return to traditional values it was what's going to unify and save the empire. Part of these traditional values is the worship of the Roman pantheon. And so Decius puts a lot of effort into restoring sacred groves, into restoring temples, into empowering the colleges of priests that oversee religious worship, and of course, persecuting Christians. In the year 250, Decius gives a general edict that all free inhabitants of the empire must both taste sacrificial meat and pour out a libation to the gods. And if you don't do this, you're in really big trouble. Last time we talked about Trajan's uh, letter to Pliny in reply to Pliny's letter, which outlined his policy for the way magistrates were supposed to go about investigating Christians. And he basically said, if a Christian is reported to you, take the allegation seriously, investigate it, you know, maybe do some torturing or whatever you need to do to get to the, the facts. Uh, but you don't have to become a Christian hunter. You don't have to go around investigating who's a Christian and who's not. Under Decius's edict, exactly the opposite happened. Under Decius, the thinking was you should assume that everybody is trying to get out of the worship of legitimate gods, everybody is a Christian, and test every single citizen of the empire. So under this edict, once you made your sacrifice to the gods, you got a little certificate called a libellus that says, um, on such and such a day, Cachelius made sacrifice to the gods. He is A-OK. He's a regular old pagan like the rest of us. He's not a Christian. Don't do him any harm. And a lot of these libelli still exist. We have lots of these certificates, particularly in places like Egypt where the sand has preserved them. So there are a couple of ways of getting out of sacrifice. You could hide and uh, hope that you weren't called upon to make sacrifice. You might go hide out in the wilderness or something like that. Or you could purchase a fake libellus. Maybe you'd go to a forager and he would write out a libellus for you so that when uh, the Roman soldier stopped you, you could say like, no, got my libellus right here next to my driver's license, my insurance card. I'm good. I'm a, I'm a regular pagan just like the rest of you. But this was the first empire-wide persecution of Christians. This happened all across the empire and lots and lots and lots of Christians were martyred during this time. In Christianity, to make a sacrifice to the pagan gods, to eat of this meat of sacrifice, to make a libation, even if you're just pouring out a little tiny drop of wine to, to a modern, it might not seem like such a big deal. To ancient Christians, this was apostasy. This was turning your back on God, turning your back on Christ, and becoming a pagan again. This is how... The Christians saw it, this is how the church saw it, and this is also how Rome saw it. A lot of the great Christian thinkers of this period were actually killed in this persecution, including Origen of Alexandria. 
In 251, Decius is killed in battle fighting the Goths, and things get slightly quieter for Christians for a short time. But in 285 AD, Diocletian comes to the throne. Diocletian is a peasant from modern Albania. His father may have been a freed slave, and he had just an incredible genius for administration. He reunites the empire in this very powerful way, and he admits that the empire is too large for one person to rule. So he actually divides the empire into two halves, an eastern half and a western half. This continues to have ramifications until today. And he appoints uh, a co-emperor to rule with him in the west. He is the emperor of the east, the other emperor is the emperor of the west, and they each have a co-assistant emperor. So Diocletian is now the Augustus of the East. He's got another guy who's the Augustus of the West. Diocletian has a kind of assistant called Galerius, who's the Caesar of the East. And the other guy has a Caesar of the West. So now there are kind of two head emperors and two junior emperors reigning over the whole empire. Diocletian puts together the Roman post. So this is not like a mailbox on every corner. Instead, this is a system of couriers, a system of horses and riders, kind of like the Pony Express, by which he can uh, convey orders very quickly. He can receive messages very quickly. So uh, he has the best information out of um, any ruler. Diocletian also heavily militarizes the Roman state. He grows the army, perhaps doubling it. And this has to be paid for somehow. So rather than debasing coinage, Diocletian decides to enforce the tax laws really rigorously. And so he creates an intricate and just huge bureaucracy with tentacles spreading out over the entire empire so that taxes can be collected, so that things run efficiently, so that everything works well. He is just the administrator par excellence. Diocletian also revalues the currency. He returns all the silver that should be in a coin to that coin, building trust in the economy, and everything becomes much more solidified and stable. Like Decius, Diocletian sees having the right religion as key to Rome's success, and he appoints Mithraism, which is a cult that was very popular among army officers, as the official religion of the empire. Diocletian's opposition to Christianity begins fairly gradually. It starts with trying to rid the army of Christian officers, but a few things start to concern Diocletian. First, there is this huge pagan sacrifice in the city of Antioch in which the priest declares that the gods remain silent. They won't make their will known because Christians are present. Greco-Romans were really big fans of oracles. These are places where you would go and a god or goddess would possess one of their priests. They would kind of take them over and speak through them in these cryptic phrases. And these cryptic phrases might not make any sense at first, but as they were interpreted by the priests and by soothsayers and so forth, they would reveal uh, cosmic wisdom. So the people of Athens at one point are going to be attacked by their enemies. They go to the Oracle of Apollo at Delphi, and they say, what are we supposed to do? The Oracle of Apollo says, take to your wooden walls. And they're like, wooden walls? If we build a bunch of wooden walls, they're just going to burn them down. What's going to be the point of that? They think and they think and they think and they realize ships have wooden walls. We're supposed to have a naval battle. We're supposed to advance on the water to meet our enemy and we will be successful in the naval battle. This is like so counter to anything they would have thought of. They do it and it works because the Oracle of Delphi knew what was going to happen as long as they just took his good advice. 
So these oracles are super important in the ancient world. And at one point, Diocletian sends a senior advisor to one of the most important oracles in the ancient world. It's not the oracle at Delphi. It's a different oracle of Apollo in modern-day Turkey. And this advisor goes there, asks a couple of really important questions, and the oracle is silent. The priest of the oracle cannot speak. He he's becomes mute. And this is interpreted as um, the gods' fury over the Christians. In 303, Diocletian issues his first real edict against the Christians. And in this, he says, all churches are supposed to be destroyed. If there's a church, let's pull it down. Christian books are meant to be treated like evil books of magic. They're supposed to just be burned on sight. If you can find a Christian book, even if it's a very important, expensive Christian book, toss it on the fire. Christians are no longer able to testify in trials. They're not considered as trustworthy witnesses. So if you're a Christian, you can't testify in a trial. They have to be ejected from civil service. The Romans had this, what was called the cursus honorum, this course of honors, which um, people of a certain rank were expected to go through, and that would be the sort of progress of their career. Christians were just summarily ejected from civil service. And, awful for Christian slaves, Christian slaves could no longer be freed. They would just serve as slaves for the entirety of their lives. All pretty rough stuff but not compared to what was to come. Later that year, there are two mysterious fires. A fire is set in the palace. Parts of the palace are burning down. The royal family is, is threatened, and the Christians are blamed. Then there is a second mysterious fire in the palace. There's like, whoever this arsonist is keeps going, and the Christians are declared as public enemies. They're enemies of the state. They are outlaw and they are rounded up for execution on April 28, 303. On this day, all bishops, all priests, all deacons, everybody is rounded up publicly, and they are given a chance on the spot to either make sacrifice or be executed. So either stop being a Christian, become a pagan, here and now, or we kill you here and now. And historians tell us that there were just heaps and heaps of dead bodies lining the streets of every major Roman city. Remember, Diocletian had instituted these bureaucratic reforms, and so things were incredibly efficient. And so when Diocletian gave the order that on this day, all clergy should be rounded up and either become apostate or be executed, it happened. And so just thousands and thousands of clergy were killed. And then they systematically go after the laity, hunting down Christians forcing them to either make sacrifice or to be put in jail, or sometimes, like the clergy, summarily executed. But we're told by the historian Eusebius that the jails start utterly filling up to capacity. They're just cramming so many Christians in that it's becoming problematic. Where to even house these people? And this is because for these Christians, their faith in Christ, their relationship to God, was deemed so much more important than life itself that they would willingly undergo any sacrifice, any torture, rather than giving up their faith. In 304, Diocletian gets very sick, and he goes into a life of semi-retirement. And so his assistant emperor, his Caesar Galerius, takes over. And Diocletian wanted the empire to be unified. Diocletian wanted the empire to have the right worship of the right gods, and he was afraid the Christians were interfering with this. But Galerius, his Caesar, just hated Christians. And so for Galerius, this was this golden opportunity to rid the world of Christians for all time, and he gave it his best shot. 
So under Galerius, the persecution of Christians goes into turbo mode, and he sets up altars to the gods everywhere. So you can't go into a courthouse without making sacrifice. You can't go into a bathhouse without making sacrifice. You can't walk down the street without making sacrifice. And if you refuse to make sacrifice and people see you refusing, then you are in big trouble. And this is not a localized persecution. This doesn't just happen in a few cities and you leave the city and you're safe. This is happening everywhere in the empire. Villages, small towns, big cities. Anywhere you are, you are forced to sacrifice to the gods or be executed. And this isn't just like a six-month thing or a year-long thing. This goes on for years until 311. But in 311, Galerius gets really sick, and he starts to rethink his relationship to Christianity. So much so that in 311, he issues his own Edict of Toleration, or what becomes known as the Palinode of Galerius. And here he says... In view of our most mild clemency, and the constant habit by which we are accustomed to grant indulgence to all, you know, all that slaughtering of Christians to thousands and thousands of people, we thought that we ought to grant our most prompt indulgence also to these, so that they may again be Christians, and may hold their conventicles, provided they do nothing contrary to good order. But we shall tell the magistrates in another letter what they ought to do. Wherefore, for this our indulgence, they ought to pray to their God for our safety, for that of the Republic, and that of their own, that the Republic may continue uninjured on every side, and that they may be able to live securely in their homes. So Galerius does this incredible 180 from saying Christianity is this pernicious thing, Christianity is this awful, kind of idolatrous, atheistic religion which is destroying the state to saying, actually, I would prefer if the Christians would pray for me, because I am very ill, things are going very poorly for me, and maybe they were right and I was wrong. This letter, of course, becomes much celebrated by the writers of the early church. This guy, who is Christianity's worst nightmare, Christianity's worst enemy, Christianity's worst persecutor, who hated Christianity more than anyone who did more to try and destroy and wipe out forever Christianity than anyone ever had, finally says, would you mind uh, just saying a few prayers for me? Uh, that, that would be great. Thanks. So how did the church survive these hundreds of years of persecution? Regional, awful persecution, empire-wide systematic persecution. How is it that Christianity is still a thing after all of this effort to wipe it out? The writer Tertullian of Carthage said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And by this he meant that it was actually the martyr's witness, the martyr's testimony to the importance of Christianity, to the power of Christianity, that actually allowed the church to not only survive, but to thrive. At this time, Stoicism and Epicureanism were two of the biggest philosophical schools, and the goal of both was to become invulnerable to chance, invulnerable to your fortune, invulnerable to the fear of pain or the lure of pleasure. They had different techniques for accomplishing this, but ultimately the ideal was to be fearless. There was a sort of ancient world stereotype of the Stoic who is this like, like invulnerable kind of wise man who is always silent and kind of staring dramatically off into the distance and he would board a ship with his his stoic books and not talk to any of the other passengers. He would just be thinking great thoughts and 
you know, there would be uh, someone would win the lottery on the boat and he would be like, Peshaw, lottery, who cares? Another person would die and he'd say, Peshaw, death, who cares? I'm just, I'm invulnerable to chance, pain, pleasure. They mean nothing to a wise man like myself. But then the winds would pick up, the rain would start, the waves would get higher and higher. Water would start pouring into the ship, a sail would break off, and it would be the stoic that was screaming at the top of his lungs for his mommy and throwing his books overboard and pulling out his hair. In other words, they talked a lot about being invulnerable to the fear of death, and yet they were just as afraid to die as anyone. And so, in the ancient world, for a public entertainment, for just like a pleasant Saturday afternoon, you take the family down to the circus. But rather than clowns and acrobats and so forth, it was the circus in which you watch people be killed. And so you might have a thief who would come out and he would have to fight a professional gladiator and he would be this big, tough, burly guy. But once the gladiator started attacking him, he would be down on the ground sobbing, begging for the gladiator to spare his life. And then you might have uh, some rebels come out and they were these mighty warriors and they were going to overthrow the state Uh, And then they get attacked by lions and they're torn apart and they're just seen as kind of weak and helpless and vulnerable. And they were terrified of the lions running around in circles trying to get out of the arena, but eventually they were killed. And then you have some Christians come out to be executed, but they're not afraid of the lions. They're not afraid of the gladiators. Instead of calling for their mothers and falling on the ground and begging and pleading and crying, they're just singing psalms. And these are not big, tough, burly guys. Some of them are kids. Some of them are slaves. Some of them are women. All these groups seen in the Roman Empire as being weak or lesser or whatever. And yet they seem so much stronger than the toughest of the tough. Because none of this stuff really mattered in comparison to how filled they were with peace and love and joy and goodness. We have records of martyrs, early martyrs like Ignatius of Antioch, who talks about how he he begs the Roman Christian community not to try and bribe his guards to let him off easy, because he says, like, this is such a great honor to be unified with Christ in my death, to be martyred. This is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me, not because death was a good thing or they wanted to die, but because he had this opportunity to show his fidelity to Christ, to show the depth of his faith and his love for God. And so all over the Roman Empire, all these people who had been studying Stoicism for years, it wasn't really working out, they would see these children, these slaves, women, young men, all these kind of vulnerable seeming groups come out into the arena and be utterly fearless, utterly unafraid to die, so confident in who they were and what was happening to them and who was supporting them. And they said, I'll have what she's having. Like, that is what I want. That is what I am looking for. And so... Even in this age of horrible persecution, of horrible martyrdom, the church continued to just explode in membership and in growth and in people embracing this faith. So next time we'll talk a little bit about what that early Christian faith entailed, what the theology of the early church looked like. And then from there, we'll get into a shift that happens when Christianity is no longer illegal, but becomes a kind of normative religion. Thanks so much for joining me for the History of Christianity. 